All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show here on the Land of Israel Network, landofisrael.com, broadcasting from Jerusalem, Hebron, Land of Israel, and sometimes places around the world that have energy for the Land of Israel, have sparks for the Land of Israel. Today's a two-part show, so this is just an intro. Uh, first, we're going to have Amir Ohana, who is an incredible Knesset member. On the one hand, he's gay. On the other hand, he's also a nationalist, uh, a conservative, a right-winger uh, for self-defense, Jewish self-defense. And maybe those things don't get along, or they do. It's a fascinating talk uh, with a very interesting person uh, right across from Marata Mechpelah in Hebron. So enjoy that part. The second part, of course, is Spiritual Cafe with Rabbi Mike Foyer and a lot of uh, sweet Torah and important Torah for the Torah portion of Kitavo when you come into the land in the book of Deuteronomy. Also, let me add that today is Chai Elul, the 18th day of the Hebrew month of Elul, which is a significant date on the Hasidic calendar and a significant date for all of us. It's the birthday uh, of Israel Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov, and it's also 36 years later uh, was the day when he uh, kind of revealed himself and stopped being a hidden Sadik and became a more revealed one. Uh, so so today's an important day, um, the 18th of Elul, and it's also the birthday of Re- Rabbi Shneer Zaman of Liadi, the founder of the Chabad movement, who's really the spiritual grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, and so today is a day for, uh, re, as they say in Chabad, revivification, vivification, to be vivified, and to have chai. Chai means life, uh, being alive. So today is chai Elul, and, and also there's a tradition that the next 12 days are days that you're supposed to examine every month in the previous year. So get to it, folks. We are, we are coming down the, uh, uh, the runway towards uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, towards the new year, and it's time to prepare uh, Rosh Hashanah is the big day. It's a big day of judgment. It's a big day of crowning God King. We'll be talking about that in subsequent episodes. But get ready uh, for Rosh Hashanah. This is the time. And get ready for the show. Here is Amir Ohana. And afterwards, stay tuned for Spiritual Cafe. All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Ma'arat HaMachpelah, from the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs here in Hebron. I'm sitting uh, on a grassy patch right next to that very uh, incredible monument, which is uh, the place that the mothers and fathers of the Jewish people are buried, the, the founders of ethical uh, monotheism. And you know that I, that I work here, I get to meet great people. And one of the people that I've wanted to interview for a long time is Knesset member Amir Ohana from the Likud, uh, who is uh, a former GSS Shabak agent, uh, sits today on the Foreign and Defense Committee, uh, and is one of the vocal supporters of the, the strong land of Israel against the two-state solution and against basically weakness in all its various uh, various uh, ways that it can manifest itself. Uh, and he's here today because the whole land of Israel caucus has shown up here to have a little meal and to state uh, their connection, the importance of Hebron to, to the story of Israel, their connection to this place. And it's so important that they came here today because coincidentally, it seems, this morning, two jihadist attackers came at soldiers just a few meters away from Maratha Machpelah and tried to stab them and both were shot dead. This is also just a few hours after a wonderful wedding took place here at Maratha Machpelah, which is the exact antidote to the fear that wants to be generated by the jihad. Knesset member Amir Khan, I've wanted to speak with you for a long time. Tell me a little bit about yourself, about your career, how you how you got to where you are today. Thank you so much, Ishai, for having me. It's uh, so good to be here in this uh, very unusual place. 
I was born four years ago uh, in uh, the city of Beersheba. 40 years ago. I'm also 40. <laughs> okay. 76. 76. Yeah, same here. March. June. <laughs> okay, so I'm older. Uh, I was born in uh, the southern city of uh, Beersheba. Uh, when I turned 18, I uh, was recruited to the military, as most of us here in Israel uh, do, and then spent a total of 12 years in the Israeli Defense Forces, both in the IDF, And in the Shin Bet, the Israeli Security Agency. Uh, then at uh, 2011, after a few years uh, that I had a law firm of my own, I work as a lawyer. Uh, I'm a lawyer too. Yeah, so we have <laughs> much in common. There you go. Then I raised a very special caucus in the Likud uh, with the Likudnik friends of mine, uh, the LGBT caucus. Hold on one second. Likud, just for a second, I just want to say to people, is, of course, the governing party of Israel. It's the center-right party in Israel. And within that party, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of room to navigate in its ideology within the Likud. What I always say is that the Likud party is really the most pluralistic and diverse party in Israel. It actually uh, it has all the very special mosaic of the Israeli society. You cannot find it in any other party that you would have... Uh, special organized groups of uh, ultra-orthodox alongside with the LGBTs, new immigrants alongside with suburbs, uh, sell sellers from Judea and Samaria as lo- alongside with Tel Avivians, new immigrants, uh, uh, women, men, Arabs, Druze, Jews, everything that you would find in the Israeli society, you would also find it in the Likud. Still, though, it's a center-right party. It is, of course. Yeah. We don't have any lefties, but we do have... Uh, the mainstream of the right uh, in Israel, and it varies, of course. Now, you started saying that you started a caucus within the Likud of the LGBT community, the lesbian, gay, trans, bisexual community. And, I mean, the, the, the immediate question is, what? I yeah. thought, first thing, I would have thought, in general, the, the trend around the world is the LGBT community And now also Q world, all, the, all these uh, letters, they're basically center left. No, they actually belong to the left. Right, they are the left. But, no, no, but it's a, it's a big mistake because, yes. But you're right, that, am I right that that is a common... That's right. In most of the world, as it was in Israel not too long ago, mm-hmm. uh, the left-wing parties were the ones to address LGBT issues. But in Israel, I think we have quite a unique situation because when you talk about right and left in the world, You would talk primarily about economy issues, social issues, but when you talk about right and left in Israel, you would talk primarily about the Israeli-Arab conflict and where do you stand on these security issues. And for that reason, I think there, there should be no problem for a person to hold right-wing views and even, as I am sometimes being described, hawkish right-wing views, and yet hold... Uh, uh, those views of freedom, freedom for women, freedom for LGBTs, freedom of speech and liberty. This is why I think there, is, there should be no contradiction between me being a right-wing Knesset member and still support those freedoms that I'm talking about. And by the way, we do share, I, I'm talking about the Western world, the world that supports freedom. We also share a common enemy. And that enemy is the one that uh, I consider to be the enemy of the free world. Those Muslims who think that if you do not go by their path, and it doesn't matter if you're Christian, Jew, or Muslim, if you don't go by their path, 
then you should not exist. And this is the clash of civilizations that I see, that Samuel Huntington referred to many, many years ago, uh, that the world, the Western world, uh, is uh, experiencing right now. You see it in Europe, you see it uh, definitely in this region, and you would also see it, I think, uh, and you have seen it in America too. Well, right now, there's this is uh, just a little bit after, there's been two attacks, one in New York and one in New Jersey, yeah. probably by the jihad. And by the way, just so you know, that that's a term that I use a lot of times to, to help people understand what I'm talking about. I tell people, we don't have a war with the Arabs. Arabs are a big nation. And we don't have a war with Islam. Islam is a big religion with many different facets and kinds in history. Most of their victims are Muslim. That's right. Most of their victims are Who's Muslim. they? They are the, that stream right. that we are talking about, the extremists that say that if you no, do not go by their path, then you cannot lo no longer exist. They uh, uh, went to a jihad. That's the word I use. A That's holy the word. war against the infidels. That's the word that I use. Those who do not go by their path. And this is our sh common enemy. Okay. So, um, a fasc still though, it is still fascinating to me because there is generally groupings of political ideas. And because liberalism and ultra-liberalism and the LGBT community generally belongs to the ultra-liberal facet of things, it usually also lines up on security left, which is a lot of times empowering the jihad and being more <laughs> uh, culturally diverse and, and we have to see their plight and all this kind of thing. And you stand on the other side of that, and not only in the Likud, but it, as you said, not just are you a right-wing Knesset member, you're hawkish, you're hawkish. What, what does that mean, hawkish? First of all, you've got to remember that uh, being gay does not mean that you are only gay. You have other uh, spectrums uh, of, uh, of ideas and uh, uh, views, and I also have uh, opinions about security, economy, society, whatever, uh, so I don't view the world through uh, pink glasses. This is why I don't think the idea of raising a 22nd Arab state that no doubt would not be different than the other 21 uh, regarding to human rights and LGBT rights and women rights would be a good and, idea. And, and their yachas, and their, uh, their, their, their uh, relationship to Israel. We are, we are talking about, the, forget Israel, we're talking about a nation that throws gays off rooftops. Right. Okay? When we are talking about uh, the Islamic world, uh, I'm sorry to say, it's not very pluralistic, it's not very open, it's not very liberal. In Iran, they hang gays. In the more moderate states, they only imprison them. So, uh, in that sense, of course, we are on the two sides of the aisle. We're not on the same side. You've managed probably... You asked what it means to be hawkish. Right. I'll get back to that in a second. Okay, we'll get to that. Okay. You, and last, last real point on the, on the, on the gay and, and right-wing issue. Last point on this. You've managed to bring a lot of people from those camps, from the ultra-liberal camps, from the LGBT camps, from the, all, all those kind of ways of thinking over to nationalistic, quote-unquote, hawkish views on Israel. That, that has been a special gift that you've been able to bring to uh, the Knesset and to Israel. Actually, ever since we have uh, raised the LGBT caucus of the Likud, we have found an extraordinary phenomena. People that in every, before every elections, they have to think whether to vote for Likud or Meretz. Now, Meretz, you've got to know, far is left a party. far left party. And Likud, as you said before, is a center-right party. So it's a very strange uh, phenomena, and you would not find it in any other uh, society or community. And where does it come from? 
I'll tell you, it comes from those people who say, look, uh, defense-wise, security-wise, economy-wise, I'm only good, but I also am gay, so I want a party that would address me, that would uh, uh, talk to me. And the only ones to do so before 2011 were merits and, uh, and labor. So mm -hmm. this is why uh, they so had created a door for them. So exactly. Our slogan is Gavabalikud, pride in the Likud. You have a home. Mm. You have a political home. Mm. And ever since we established that group, we have not only managed to be uh, the largest, but also the most influential LGBT caucus in the Knesset. Wow. Um, that, that, so, <laughs> so the most influential LGBT caucus in the Knesset is part of the Likud and is headed up by well, a... By a hawkish Knesset member. Well, it's the only. That's amazing. It's the only LGBT caucus that managed to uh, to have a Knesset member of their own. Right. Um, and it's I'm the first Knesset member ever from any coalition. Let Out of the closet, I'm talking about openly openly gay. How openly Israeli are you? How openly Jewish are you? How openly right? Very much so. Very much so. I see you're wearing. A uh, star of David. Yeah, it's it's a part of me. You know, actually, uh, I bought it before my first trip to Berlin. Mm -hmm. So on German soil, it was important for me to have the Magen David on me. I wanted it to be visible, so people can see it. And of course, well, you know, in my swearing-in speech at the Knesset, I said something uh, that I think relates uh, to the place that we are sitting in. In 1921, Sir Winston Churchill, uh, a statesman that humanity owes a great deal to, came to visit Israel. Back then it was Palestine. This, uh, the state of Israel was not established yet. And he came to Tel Aviv. And Tel Aviv's first mayor was Mayor Dizengoff. And he wanted to impress Churchill very much. By then, uh, back then, Tel Aviv was very young, so it had no uh, grown trees in it. So he borrowed grown trees from the environment and planted them in Rothschild Avenue so it would look like it's very grown. And indeed, the site was spe spectacular. People came with flags and uh, Churchill was amazed how miraculously the city has grown in such a short time. And Dizengoff, of course, had a Cheshire green on his face. Uh, he was very happy. And as the wind began <laughs> to blow, some of the trees began to fall. Dizengoff, of course, couldn't find him. He was so embarrassed. But Churchill patted on his shoulder and said, my dear Mr. Dizengoff, without roots, nothing will grow here. Mm -hmm. And this is really the story. This is why we must remain connected to our roots. Because without them, we have no future here. And we're speaking here at the place of roots, right? We're, we're talking yeah. about the real roots of, of the, the state of Israel. Yet today, these roots... The, the real roots of the Jewish people. The Jewish people, that's yeah. right, the Jewish people. Uh, the, real, the roots here, according to Judaism, is that Adam and Eve are buried here. According to the Bible, certainly, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah are buried here. And King David starts his kingdom here. So from the beginning of humanity from the roots of Adam and Eve to what has sustained humanity, the Abrahamic faiths, all the way to King David, the, the, the idea of Messiah. It all has its roots here. And yet, and yet, these roots uh, are under incessant pressure to fall down, just like your story. Um, the, the pressure here are also three. Uh, first, we have the jihad, and 80% of this town is Hamas and jihad. 
then we have the international quote unquote community, which wants to see Jews not present here and are constantly recently when we and when it was announced that there is some uh, building uh, uh, permits to plan plan some pr- uh, building here in Hebron, the State Department and themselves uh, accused this of being illegitimate and unhelpful. And then, of course, also members here in, in Israel of the Israeli body politic are against the Jewish presence in Hebron as though they're trying to undermine those very roots. People like yourself are here today in order to, to change that, that these concepts and these notions. Around us, though, Knesset member Ohana, is um, the Palestinian Authority. The reality is, is that right now you're in a Jewish enclave, a ghetto of sorts, within the Palestinian Authority. And this is, um, are, we, are we ever going to see a time in our, we're both 40, are we going to see uh, in our lifetime a reversal of this granting of our land to the Palestinian Authority, the reversal of the gateway to jihad. Someone, when you, sometimes when you talk about the Israeli-Arab conflict, definitely with people who do not know it very well, you can get the idea that it began at 1967. I'm talking about the Six-Day War, where uh, when Israel liberated Judea, Samaria, and the uh, east of uh, Jerusalem. Of course, the conflict began much, much sooner. In just one weekend of 1929, August 1929, 133 Jews were murdered and many others were raped and stabbed and injured in, in Hebron, actually, where we are right now, in Hebron, in Tzfat, and in many, many other uh, locations in Israel. What caused that uh, pogrom back then? Was it the occupation? Of course not. Was it the uh, existence of the state of Israel? Of course not. I'm talking about 1929. So really this terror that we are facing, that Israeli citizens are facing, is about a hundred years old. It did not begin in 1929. It began even sooner. It began since the times that the Jewish people had uh, started to go back home, to their home, to their homeland, which is Israel, the land of Israel. And when I say land of Israel, I mean, of course, Judea, Samaria, Negev, Galilee, uh, and all of of the land of Israel. Now, why did they establish what some of my friends, my colleagues call partner, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, back in 1964, before we liberated Judea and Samaria? There was not a single Jew or a single Israeli soldier uh, on Judea and Samaria in 1964. So what did they want to liberate Palestine from? Or rather, should we say, what is Palestine? Is it really Hebron and Maale Shomron and Otniel? Or is it really Akko and Yafo and Tzfat and Haifa and everything that we consider as the state of Israel? But my colleagues say, oh, come on, that was 1964. By now they realize that they cannot have the state of Israel and they are only talking about uh, the West Bank. And the answer to that would be found in every pro-Palestinian demonstration in American campuses, on European campuses, and even here in the, on the land of Israel. And in every map it's that they publish. Still, it's still the same old slogan. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Now, when you take a look at the map, where does it put us? In the sea. Yeah. We better learn how to swim. <laughs> <laughs> so... Even now, I say, uh, the vast majority, I'm not talking about every last Arab, but the vast majority, the influential majority anyway, still believes that they, we are here just a temporary thing. 
They, they can take us out like the British before us and like the Ottomans before them because we are not deeply rooted, rooted. in this land. And this is our mission to show them how wrong they are. And you do that not by destroying settlements, but by building them, by building more, by expanding, by learning how to live together rather than kill each other. This is the only future here because no one's going away. Make no mistake. The Palestinians are not going away and we are not going away. And the only future is if we learn. You know, when I hear about the BDS movement, they want to boycott, divest and uh, uh, sanction uh, the state of Israel or anyway, at least those factories that work in, on Judea and Samaria. And I, when I take a look in these factories and I visit them pretty often, what I see is Jews and Arabs living together, working together, having lunch together, congratulating each other for a newborn in the family. This is coexistence. This is how to learn to live together rather than kill each other. And this is what you want to BDS and no, le no less in the name of peace? Come on. This has nothing to do with peace. It's pure anti-Semitism. They just want uh, not the establishment of a state, but the ruins of another. And not the good of their people either, right? Because the good of the people, as you just explained, is yes. working side, living in Israel, yes. lives side by side. But you have to drop jihad. You have to drop the jihad, and that's a problem. Yeah. And we are not living at a time where the jihad is being dropped. It's actually being ratcheted up right now. That's Very right. much, very much. And uh, just to make it clear, in the past few days, there's been at least six attacks that have been reported, and there's others, uh, but serious attacks, stabbings, car rammings, rock throwings, really... Uh, when we see the incitement that goes on uh, on the um, uh, social media, and even in the Palestinian Authority, let alone Hamas, uh, it shouldn't surprise us. It's quite natural. Knesset member Amir Khanna, you, we, talk, we talked about... Uh, Hawkish views, security issues here in Israel, the Arab-Israeli conflict. We talked about uh, the LGBT caucus. Any other issues that you're particularly fighting for that are not part of these two uh, issues? Any other things that, that the Knesset you see as a platform for fixing, making the state of Israel better and stronger? Sure. First of all, uh, uh, um, personal security is one of my highlights. Uh, definitely in the light of those last past, uh, past months, and uh, therefore, even if we cannot solve the Israeli-Arab conflict, we should allow our citizens to defend themselves better. And uh, in that way, it's very Do you unfortunate. Yes, I'm going to talk about yeah. it. It's very unfortunate when you see that uh, uh, the state of Israel does not allow many citizens to carry firearms. Now, uh, there is a certain image of Israel as everyone has a machine gun in the living room and a tank in their backyard. It's so far from truth, because if we compare personal, personal owned firearms uh, versus citizens, in the States, it's 112%. It means so that uh, some people, of course, have five firearms and some have none. But in Israel, it's between 2 to 4%. Mm. This is how few uh, privately owned firearms we have. I think that a person that has no criminal record or relevant medical record and either served or serving in the, in the draft army. Uh, the IDF. The IDF, of course, uh, should be allowed to carry a, a personal uh, handgun for self-defense. I'm not talking about machine guns or automatic, but just personal 
We have seen nine terror attacks only in the area of Jerusalem foiled by citizens carrying firearms. We should see more of that. And on the other hand, we have seen a terrorist that ran for all nearly 20 minutes on the esplanade between Tel Aviv and Jaffa, stabbing 11 people, including one American student that came here to Israel. And he, unfortunately, died from that terror attack. He was murdered. For 20 minutes, there was no one to stop him. A certain person tried to stop him with a guitar. The guitar broke down, but the terrorist went on until a police officer came and shot him dead. We should have more and more citizens as a force multiplier uh, uh, alongside with police and security uh, agencies. Well, I certainly agree with that. I don't understand why uh, if you're living in one part of Jerusalem and then uh, you can't have a gun if you live in a different part. Who's to determine where the terrorist is going to go? Yeah, Who's to determine what's dangerous and what's not dangerous? It's a completely arbitrary We know system. the terror attacks us uh, everywhere. It has occurred in Tel Aviv, in uh, Otniel, uh, everywhere. So we need to defend ourselves better. Uh, Amir Khanna, what about your own personal uh, career path? Are you going to stay in politics? Are you going to continue in the Likud? The only one to decide that are the Likud uh, registered members and uh, the Israeli voters. But uh, have you been finding that the Knesset is uh, a way to get things done in the country? Have you, have I, you found I would it say it's very challenging. Um, the, the average Knesset member is uh, very limited as to what he can uh, or cannot actually uh, do. But within that frame, I do find that there are many things to be done and many changes that we can promote. And I hope to do so for many, many years. Well, Knesset member Amir Ohana, if somebody wants to reach you, uh, your Twitter handle is at Amir Ohana, A-M-I-R-O-H-A-N-A, Amir Ohana. And I want to thank you so much for being with me. I want to also thank you for coming here to Hebron today and strengthening our roots. Our roots as a Jewish people, our roots as a Jewish nation, as a state of Israel. And I want to wish you also Shana Tovah Mevrechet, a happy new year. Uh, an end of the year is coming. There's been great successes this year, also great challenges. And a new year is coming. Uh, the next uh, chapter of the story of the state of Israel and the Jewish people. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ishai. And a shana, big Shana Tovah. Happy New Year for all our uh, listeners, both here in the land of Israel and overseas. I hope that we will uh, see more and more visitors here uh, deep in their roots for many, many years. All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting from Hebron on a grass across from the Ma'arat HaMachbelah, the tomb of the founding fathers and mothers. Stay tuned. More great stuff is on the way. And Shalom. All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show. I hope you enjoyed Amir Ohana. I know I did. Fascinating interview, a fascinating person. Uh, and uh, I guess he challenges us uh, um, some of the preconceptions that we might have about other people's opinions. And, and there you go. And he told me actually before the interview, he's like, everybody's got preconceptions about other people as well. When I told him about uh, how sometimes I'm misjudged or, or my opinions are misjudged. In any case, uh, folks, uh, let's keep our minds open, our hearts open. At the same time, let's keep our dedication to God's word and God's will. And these things are not always easy. It's a dance. It's a dance. Uh, and one of the best dancers out there is Rabbi Mike Foyer, and that's why we bring you Spiritual Cafe almost every week. Uh, when I get out there to America, I guess we miss him. But he's back, and here uh, is my chat with Rabbi Mike Foyer at a very beautiful location here in the Land of Israel. You are listening to the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com. And don't forget to write me an email, yeshai at thelandofisrael.com. Israel.com and of course right in the subject line I'm a listener, I am a listener or I'm a listener 
And next week I'll read some of the emails that came in uh, in the last uh, bit. So keep writing to me. I will. De- I definitely read them and I will definitely answer them. Uh, and here's Rabbi Mike Foyer and myself on Spiritual Cafe. Enjoy. Shalom, everybody, and welcome back to the Yishai Fleischer Show, now broadcasting live from Jerusalem. We're in the Mamilla Mall. Uh, I can see I'm eyeshot from uh, the old city walls of Jerusalem, and below me uh, is a river of humanity that walks here in the Mamilla Outdoor Mall promenade. It was only 10, 15 years ago that this place was just a, a kind of a broken construction site it had old churches old things dust uh you know unsavory characters you didn't want to be here today it is one of the most beautiful examples of the return of the jewish people to the land of israel the extension of the old city and really the bustling life that is jerusalem i'm sitting at the uh cafe greg greg cafe in the mamilla mall in a kind of uh a patio balcony thing that actually oh, we're just sitting above the street itself and I'm not here alone rather I am with Rabbi Mike Foyer and you know what that means it's time for Spiritual Cafe Rabbi Mike welcome to the show it's great to see you back it's great to be back with you it was it was hard to be out there in, um, uh, out in uh, the west coast of the United States uh, not for lack of good weather and plenty of ocean views and nice people uh, but of course Spiritual Cafe did not happen although I did have a show with a grieving expert, uh, with a person who uh, is an expert in, in dealing with tragedy and grieving, uh, uh, Ken, with D- Dr. Um, uh, Ken, who was uh, an, am- an amazing interview that a lot of people wrote into and found it to be uh, very helpful, uh, Ken Druck, that is. And um, at the same time, we missed an awesome Torah portion, Kitetse. There's a lot in there. There was a lot in there. And the reason I mention Kitetse right now is because the end of Kitetse is the super important discussion of Amalek. Amalek, how he struck us in the desert, struck those people that are uh, outside of the camp, the, the weak ones, the ones that had been defiled in some way and weren't, were outside in a cleansing process. And basically the people who were spiritually weaker, who were outside of the camp, and they're the ones that were struck by the Amalekites uh, who had the audacity uh, to strike at a Jewish people after they had left uh, Egypt in, in the miraculous exodus. And they, in a sense, cooled off the excitement uh, and the awesomeness of the Jewish people's exodus. And basically, with their, with their kind of brazen audacity, their negative chutzpah uh, struck at the Jewish people. And these are the bizarro uh, energy the, the 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 other Jews the the anti Jews the shadow side of Israel really. right they you know it always strikes me that what was their point of uh, attack is the weak and the helpless right which seems obvious on one level but uh, on the other is a question of what were the sort of weak helpless as you said the spiritually impure what were they doing left behind right I'm like struck behind from behind and that's why they were able to reach them we were on our way to Sinai, you know, in, in a hurry to get to God, so to speak. And because of my years as an outdoor guide and expert working with at-risk youth in particular, I used to always use a certain device. You ever travel the trail with a group, right? And a group of people, say 10 people, are always going to spread out on trail. Sure. And the first people to get to camp are always so happy. They drop the packs. We made it. And I used to say to the guys in front, no, you, you didn't make it. And I would make them, when they dropped their packs, I would sometimes make them go back 
and meet up with the back of the group and help them carry their gear to the end of the trail. Because right. the reality is, until everybody arrives, nobody has arrived. Right. And I feel like that that's one of the secrets of understanding how Amalek gets in, how they're really the shadow side of Israel, is that if we're in such a hurry to get to Sinai or to get to our destination, that we don't think about the fact that we've left our, some of our fellow Jews behind, that is the opening for Amalek to come in. Because the ends is not the only goal. The way in which we get there and the wholeness of our people when we arrive is just as important. So um, that was that was the book of, uh, we're in the book of Deuteronomy. That was the Torah portion of Ki as you go out to war. And it had in it uh, these uh, various, very fundamental, uh, tons of commandments, including the famous um, sending away the mother bird uh, and other laws of war who goes out to war, who comes back from war. Um, so, but it ended with this whole thing of Amalek. And, and we were talking about Amalek as being this bizarro energy, this anti-Israel, this, this, you call it Israel's shadow, the dark, the dark side. It's basically this other chosen nation. This chosen nation that's like chosen to be the nemesis, the dark side. They are the entropic, the, the kind of, the, 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 everything that the Jewish people is trying to do, they're trying to undo. Uh, if we're trying to talk about God's oneness, they're like, there is no God. Uh, it's all chance. It's all, they're all about like meaningless chance. Um, if, if we're about the, kind of the glory of God, they're about like, there is nothing to yearn for in this world. It's all, it's all meaningless. The whole game is meaningless. It's all, it, it, it's all just, you know, <laughs> it, it all doesn't have any real purpose at all in the first place. It's a purposeless world. There is no sanctity. There is no beauty. There is no. There is no reason why we should be married to one woman or, or and 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 have procreativity. It's all healthcare. What's what's healthcare in English? Ownerless, meaningless, debased. Yes. It and 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 it's yearning for. There's nothing to yearn for. So just enjoy, be merry, and whatever. You know, and on the personal level, there's a Torah from Reb Shlomo that always speaks to me. You know, we've all met people who tell us, "Hey, man, quit dreaming." You're just dreaming, right? You know, pie in the sky. And so Rabbi Shalom used to say, never be friends with anyone who tells you to stop right. dreaming. Because that's Amalek. Right. When they want to want to cool you down, like you said, they want to bring you back down to earth. Let, Today, let's give an example of that. Let's say you're crossing the street and you bump into somebody in Yerushalayim. And you're like, oh my God, I haven't seen you in 19 years. It's Mishamayim. God has ordained it said that, that we bump into each other. And the guy says to you, no, man, it's just coincidence. It's meaningless. It's like... Yeah. That, that is the energy of Amalek. It is, because the core is, is that our mission as a people is to shape ourselves into individuals who can make that meaning. Meaning, like, I don't know what God's plan is. I don't know if God, so to speak, cares if I ran into this person after 19 years. But I do know this, is that if I approach every situation with the inner conviction that it matters... And that, and that it's an expression of God's will, then I can make it so. And Amalek is doing the exact opposite, saying to you, oh yeah, but if you approach it from a meaningless standpoint, I can make it that as well. Again? The, the, it's the power of inner conviction that we as a people bring to the world. I mean, I don't think that this idea of God's will rests somewhere outside of us. There's a God, that's what I meant by the shadow, is God has planted within us the ability to articulate his will in the world. Right. So when I have that inner conviction, I run into you after 19 years, I said, this is Mina Shamaim. Is that some abstract God has got a, like a chessboard, he's moved these two pieces together? No, it means that that's how I walk in the world. And the world responds. Mm -hmm. The world responds that way. We're going to see this is a very important theme at the end of this coming Parsha, that the world of Mikre, 
of happenstance right. is the world of Amalek. If you want to see the world as happenstance, then by all means, says God, you will live in a world of right. random uh, chance. You, you could play. You could play that game. Yes, you and, I will, that game? And, and the world will respond to you that right. way. Okay, so that's that's great that you're bringing that in because I was uh, going to tie in Kitetse uh, the end there about Amalek to this Torah portion. We're in Deuteronomy. Uh, chapter 26, and it's called Kitavo. So you went out to war, now you're coming into the land of Israel. And the first phrase is called Kitavo el Arts, and it shall be when you are coming into the land, which uh, the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance to possess it and to dwell there within. And so um, that's how the Torah portion begins. But the Balaturim says there's a linkage. There's a, I love the Balaturim. There's a linkage between uh, the um, the Amalek story and coming into the land. You see, Amalek, says the Balaturim, wants to do everything to block us from coming into the land. And he gives two examples. He gives the example of when Jacob is coming to the land of Israel, and it says, and as Jacob ran away from Laban's house, uh, somebody tells Laban, Lavan, Jacob ran away. He's like, the Balturim says, who do you think told him that Jacob ran away towards the land of Israel? It was Amalek. Mm. And then it has the same phrase, and it was when they ran away or escaped. Same exact phrase, the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh heard that Israel had ran away. Who told Pharaoh? It was Amalek. And finally, when, when, when it was obvious that the Jewish people were getting to the land themselves, and Amalek realized that no Laban and no Pharaoh is going to stop the Jewish people, that they went out to war themselves uh, mm. against Israel. They, Amalek, according to the Balaturim and all the Kabbalistic literature, have an incredible urge to stop us from getting to the land of Israel. Because the Torah says, when you get to the land of Israel, that, when you're together, when you're united, exactly what you were talking about, when you're united and when, when we get all the people even those that are lagging behind, into the land of Israel, that is when we're suddenly empowered to fight Amalek because then it's not happenstance anymore. Then, then the revelation is full. You know what I hear in this? Because I feel like the last ditch effort of Amalek, their last argument is just, just don't make it real in the world. Like You can have your beliefs. You can be spiritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have your religion. Be very, very holy. But, but, but don't make it real in the world. Like once you come into the land, once we're here and we're embodying it, and, and by the way, in the messiness of that embodiment and the process orientation and it's sort of gritty reality, that's when I'm like just disappears. They like mamish like a puff of smoke. And so the, the, the worst situation for them is that we should succeed in actually embodying ourselves in the land. That's exactly right. And that is what the mystical literature talks about. They talk about Amalek not minding if you learn Torah in Lakewood or in the desert. That's fine. If you want to be in an ashram and, and be spiritual and escape this world, fine. But, but Amalek says to the Jewish people, but this dirty world, that's my playground. That's right. Not yours. I own this place. And so stay out. Stay out of business. Uh, stay out of sexuality, out of politics, out of politics, because because it's a dirty world, and I own this place. You got you go you go back to your little synagogue and and, and go pray. And Israel says, no, we're going to get into this world. We're going to sanctify and uplift this world, and that that is exactly what Amalek wants to stop. It's the power of the great gift of this world. I mean, I, I feel like sitting here in Mamila Mall. Which, uh, you know, when we decided to meet here, I said I always feel a little bit out of place. It's just a little bit fancier than I, I see myself. Nevertheless, there's a tremendous glory of this 
incredibly vibrant physicality right up against the walls of the old city. And I've heard people say it's inappropriate. There shouldn't be a mall next to the to the to the holiest site on, on the planet. And I always say to them, "When did you cease to be a Jew?" <laughs> because this idea of world rejection. Because Jews like malls. Well, okay, sorry, it's uh, that's a New Jersey joke, right? Um, the, it was. The, it certainly was. Um, no, but there, there is a subtle and very dangerous path that one can follow in Torah, which we see that other religions have taken to its natural conclusion of re- world rejection. Right. Absolutely. Right? Because that dirtiness and difficulty of the world one could lead one to believe that that is where God is not. But we say, this is what God gave us. No, it's true. It has to be sanctified. I mean, we're not into crass materialism. But, but, but physical beauty and taking pleasure in the world in a sacred and life-giving fashion is actually why we're here. Amen. And we are indeed uh, in a balcony over the Mamilla Mall. Below us, a stream of people uh, towards the old city and back from the old city. And you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show on the Land of Israel Network. If I didn't say that, the Land of Israel Network is found at thelandofisrael.com, an amazing radio station filled with amazing talent and, and really the voice of Israel coming out to the world, the voice of God through uh, the children of Israel coming back to the land of Israel. Uh, and you're part of it wherever you are. Uh, and this is Spiritual Cafe with Rabbi Mike Foer and myself, Ishai Fleischer. And uh, Rabbi Mike, we're talking uh, exactly about this issue of, of uh, the way you started framing it is, you know, how you see yourself in the world, how you bring godliness into this world, and also how to sanctify uh, the acts that we have in this world, the physicality, and, and raise it up, bring it up, uh, offer it up. Uh, that is actually the very words of this week's Torah portion. Now, now, ironically and funnily, I actually uh, um, forgot my regular art scroll chumash, and instead I have here the old... Um, Corin, Jerusalem right, Bible. Right, the old Corin, Jer- <laughs> Jerusalem Bible, and it's got the, uh, the thou's. Uh, the these and thous, but I'm going to read it with the these and thous, and maybe it's appropriate. And this is, um, well, you'll hear it. When thou hast made an end of tithing all the tithes of thy produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, and hast given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat within the gates and be replete. What is replete? Like happy, sated? sated? Yes, sated. Then thou uh, shalt say before the Lord thy God, I have removed the hallowed things out of my house and also have given them to the Levite and to the stranger, to the fatherless and the widow according to all thy commandments which thou hast commanded. I have not transgressed thy commandments, neither have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of it in my mourning, uh, neither have I consumed any part of it when unclean, nor given for it, uh, nor given of it for the dead. But I have hearkened to the voice of the Lord, uh, the, my God, and I've done according to all that Thou hast commanded me. Look down from Thy habit, holy habitation, from heaven, and bless Thy people Israel, and the land which Thou hast given us, as Thou didst swear to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. All right, this is one of the most uh, dramatic. Uh, uh, verses in the in, in the Torah where where the man where humanity is given this like this this uh, this script and it stands a Jew is supposed to stand there with his tithes in the temple and say God I've done it all the way you've told me now 
now you fill your side of things. Look down from your holy habitation in the heavens and bless your children, Israel. Give us the land of milk and honey like you promised to our fathers. That's exactly what you were talking about, taking, taking those things and, and raising them up. And, you know, it's part of a whole series of commands here. The, the one which precedes it, it really, I, I believe, um, sets the stage for what you're speaking about. And this the idea of bringing up the first fruits. And there's this power that if I have a field of, of uh, pomegranates, they're ripening right now, right? It's the first one that I see growing. I tie a little red string on it. And I say, that's first fruits. And I, I bring it up to the temple. And there's a beautiful speech that's made there, which begins with this notion of the, the bati hayom el haaretz. I've come today to the land. Here's this farmer. He brings up his first fruits. You realize that the commandment to bring the first fruits only was effectuated 14 years after the conquest. It was seven years of conquest, seven years of division, which means the first person who could have possibly done such a thing, forget the fact that the temple wasn't built for 480 years after we left Egypt, but the first person who could have possibly done such a thing would have been there for 14 years. So what does it mean that when he brings his first fruit, he says, today I've arrived? It's exactly what we're speaking about, is the, the ability to take the fruits of your labor and to elevate them through the temple specifically, but I think in life in general, to lift them up to God and say, now I know where I've been headed all along. Oh, like you thought you arrived when you found the Torah, or you thought you arrived even when you came to Eretz Israel. But the reality is you don't arrive at the destination that God has ordained for you until you can take the fruits of your entire life and lift them up to God. Which case, I mean, on a certain level, it's not until the day you die. Or every single day. I, I, exactly. That's why we say <laughs> repent one day before you die. And then the students ask, well, wait a minute, Rabbi. How am I supposed to know when the day of my death will be? He says, ah, good question. And that's why you should do it every single day. In the same way, like you're saying, is every day has fruits. Every day has fruits. And, and that's one of the most beautiful things a person can do. And the idea of cheshbon nefesh, of a, a sort of a, a soulful accounting before you go to bed. It's the season, after all, for, for thinking about what we do. Right, that's the Maharal says that the absolute command of the Torah that everyone is obligated to is think about what you do. Mm. Right? Um, and so at, at, at the end of each day to think about what you do and how can I can lift those things up, the good things and the bad things, the challenges, the successes, and, you know, the, 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 the very simple physical acts. That's the power of blessing. Right? I'm going to take a cup of coffee here, and it's not just going to be because I'm a little bit sleepy and I'd like, a, like a, a glass of joe. It's because this is an opportunity for me to connect to God through the physical and not despite it. Yes, uh, and I am, uh, I'm listening to your words, and we're sitting here in Jerusalem, and, and the concept of the day that you die, uh, that we, we know people that are very sick right now. There's a, um, uh, a female police officer who was struck in the neck uh, by a jihadist terrorist. And indeed, we're also in a wave of jihad terror here in Hebron. In Hebron, seven attacks, eight attackers uh, just in the last um, three days. Right. So uh, there's definitely a lot of people struggling here uh, to live, and you never know where the day of your death is. And still, Judaism always reminds us t today God is sending us uh, uh, his blessings. And I, I, I say this to my friends, and sometimes to my wife, I tell her, listen, don't, don't worry so much about the future and certainly don't worry about the past. Like, let's be happy with today. See the, see the blessings of today and, and, and focus in on them because there's so much to focus on. Um, and indeed, indeed, uh, verse uh, 16 says, This day the Lord God has commanded thee to do all the statute, these statutes and judgment. This very day. 
Now, uh, furthermore, in, in this week's Torah portion, there was um, a very special today that happened there. It's really a weird thing because, because we know that, that, that the Torah was given at Sinai. And yet there's this like strange promise that there will be yet another sort of giving of the Torah or acceptance of the Torah in the Twin Mountains around Shechem, around Shechem, around what, what they call Nablus. We don't use that word because Nablus means Neopolis, new city. It's a Roman wor- term. We don't use that term. Uh, but the enemies of Israel ov- often you call it Nablus or Nablus with a, with a B because they don't pronounce the P very well. But in any case, uh, there is a second giving of the Torah, and it's described here. And it's basically, when you get to, to the mountains, when you get inside the land of Israel, divide the Jewish people by tribes. Six tribes are going to stand on one mountain. Six tribes are going to stand on the other mountain. And they're going to answer amen to, to what the Torah is really all about. And, and um, uh, these things are such a strange list, an incredible list. Um, of course, idolatry is is uh, proscribed, uh, not prescribed, but proscribed. Um, uh, hitting your father and mother, uh, somebody who, who 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 tricks a blind man uh, is accursed. Uh, somebody who sleeps with an animal um, or other sexual uh, misnomers, not misnomers, misdeeds, uh, and uh, cursed is he who does not keep this whole Torah. And, and, and the, the Ark of the Covenant was kind of in the middle between these two mountains. And basically, like, the, the, the Joshua was going to, like, yell it out. And the Sanhedrin, they, they sit at the bottom. They yell it out to these mountains. And they say, hey, you got to say amen. The, you know, the curses and the blessings. Uh, what is that scene all about? And, and why does Shechem get the incredible gift of being this place where the Torah is given again in the land of Israel? Well, there's so much here. I mean, first of all, I just want to know that in the flow of the Parsha, this is the last in a series of verbalizations. Mm. Right, we have the, the bringing up of the first fruits where you have a, uh, a declaration of Jewish history, basically, as we spoke about a moment ago, and, and you're the cu- it culminating in that moment of you bringing the fruits. We have the example you gave of what's called vidui ma'asro, the confession before God that you have indeed done what you've been told, and then the request that God you know, reciprocate. reciprocate. Then we have this strange phrase, which the commentators argue about whether it even means speech but emircha liot am the god has actually spoken you out to be a people and we have spoken him out to be a god and then we have the final example what you're speaking about is this um mamad you know har grizim va'eva this this uh, i don't even know a good name for um the ceremony of standing on the mountain of blessing and curse and to me, and these are mountains that exist today. There are twin mountains. Well, not only that, you know that archaeologists—it's a bit of an argument, of course, because biblical archaeology is always an argument. But there's a strong case to be made that they found the altar of Joshua. Sure, and it's an amazing, amazing thing to contemplate. I have been up there. Yeah. So, so, but uh, that aside, to me, this power, this series of acts of speech, bring us right back to creation, because the the power of speech is the power of creation. And, and, you know, when God says, let there be light, and it, the, the text is specific that it's the power of speech, is because there's some, as it were, inner divine conception. There's some notion of what creation could be, just like we all have some inner conception of ourselves, of our right behavior. I mean, it's Elo. We're all working, hopefully, in this inner sense of who we could be in the Before the year. day of creation. Right. Before the day of creation. And then you need to speak it out. 
right? The, the ultimate act of, of what we often think of as repentance is vidu, is confession. But it can also, also often be missed that there needs to be a positive side to that. In addition to speaking about what I've done wrong in the past, I must verbalize what it is I intend to be. And here, this is the last in that series. It's the Jewish people, okay, we got the Torah. It was at Sinai. But who spoke the Torah then? It was God. We were listening. Now God says, okay, now I want to hear you say it. And that has to happen in the land it of has Israel. To happen in land, because again, it's consistent with this idea that, that it's what makes it real in the mm. world. What happens at Sinai, what happens in the desert is this inner, almost period of gestation. Right. Of, 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 of becoming. Whereas stepping into the land is that moment of choosing to be. And, and, and it's a, a powerful, powerful event here um, on, on that Mount of Blessing and Curse. And it's like a vision. Like, Moses is not going to be there, but he tells us the way it's going to be. And indeed, that's exactly how it happens. And, oh, there's one more element, that, which will probably come up for us again in Parshat Nitzavim in a, in a couple of weeks. But Rashi, echoing the words of the sages, says that this is actually the moment where the principle of kol, kol Yisrael Arevim Zelezeh comes into effect. The idea that all of Am Yisrael were, that were guarantors, that basically that we stand for each other when it comes for the, to the mitzvot, that we're not sort of um, discrete units, individual Jews, that the Torah is our, both our collective inheritance and our collective responsibility, right? That this is the moment when that comes into being because ultimately it's the land that has the ability to forge that unity. And yet we, and so if you think about it, there's a point at which one needs to keep their dreams private. Right? I feel like there are certain sure. things that need to be nurtured and, and not spoken. Sure. But, but um, I'm in sure... In fact, our, our rabbis say that the blessing only comes on things that are kind of hidden from the right. eye. Yes. But at the same time, there's a point at which, almost in order to push ourselves to make them real, we start to reveal these things to those that we trust and love. Right? And in speaking them out, there's a tremendous risk, but there's also a tremendous power in creating a reality which, which almost exists outside of me that I now can relate to and, and, and work on. And, and so I really see that this moment as that with the Torah. Up until now, the Torah has been an internal dynamic, so to speak, inside the clouds of glory, in the camp in the desert. And, and now we're going to speak it out. And again, we're also going to see the commandment to not just speak it out, but write it out. On, on, you know, in all the 70 languages of the world to manifest the Torah and put it on the borders of the land of Israel. Tell the world that this is what we are. This show today is sponsored by the good folks, uh, Jack, who dedicates the show to his uh, wife, Lillian, and sister, Sarah. Sarah dedicates the show back to him as well and to her husband and her son, Moshe, is involved as well. God bless you guys out there. My good friends, the Michels, uh, out in Switzerland, make this show possible. Uh, and my friend, Donnie Kay, makes this show possible. Uh, around the world, there are people, Fred, Fred P., he makes this show possible. I want to thank you guys out there. And please check out com forward slash support. makes a big difference. We're actually working on a new website. That's exciting. Rabbi Mike, a lot of your podcasts can be found at com. That's right. Also, I have a new series in my history series is coming out on even on the Land of Israel Network, The Jewish Story. I'm really excited about it. That's going to be part of the landofisrael.com network. That is excellent. Um, and uh, your Facebook page? Rav Mike Foyer. Rav Mike Foyer on Facebook. Okay, that is amazing. So there's so many ways to connect to us. And there's so many good people out there that are part of the story. You know, I was out in Los Angeles. I was in Phoenix. Our good friend Phoenix. Uh, I, got, I got my friend uh, Pinchas. Uh, and the Chana Bracha, and Arthur, and Matt. A lot of good people I met out there, and I, I love Phoenix. There's really great, sweet people there, and they're really part of my life now. 
and then I went out to LA, and then I went out to San Diego, which was a new new territory for me. I learned about uh, I learned about the Jews of San Diego and the non-Jews as well. I learned about uh, Carmel Valley. I learned about La Jolla. Okay, I was at the JCC of La Jolla. Uh, what else did I learn about? Oh, 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 oh. Um, there's a beautiful island down there, Coronado, Coronado Island. <laughs> That's where the seals are. The Navy SEALs train. Yeah. I could feel their energy as well. So I, I learned a lot about new places and, and, and where, where, where the folks are, where the folks are out there. And, and definitely I hope that this show and this energy reaches them out there as well. They certainly reach me now here in the land of Israel. We've got to be connected and plugged in. You're talking about speaking. The show is about speaking things out. But there was also a bit of writing as well in this week's Torah portion. And that writing is the Torah stones. The Torah stones. God says, when you cross into the land of Egypt, uh, into, out of the land of Egypt, into the Sinai, into the land of Israel, when you get finally home, I want you to take the, these stones and I want you to write the whole Torah on them. I want you to cover them in um, what's called seed. Lime. Lime, like some kind of a white. White. The plaster, plaster type thing. That's yeah. what we're looking for. And, and interestingly enough, though, the word seed is usually spelled Samach Yudalad, but here it's spelled Shin Yudalad, which is the same letters as uh, one of God's names, right? And this, uh, th- this, this uh, name of God's is the one that appears on the mezuzah. Mm-hmm. Some people say that these stones are like the mezuzah of Eretz Yisrael, and they had the whole Torah written on them. Not only that, they were supposed to be written in 70 languages, in 70 languages so that the whole world could know that the Torah is related to them as well. You know, there's a fascinating question that flows from this. There are four public fast days that we as a people commemorate. Truth is, there's more, but there's four classics. One of them is the 10th of Tevet. So you know what we're mourning on the 10th of Tevet? There's a number of things. Sure, sure. You're talking about the translation uh, of the Torah into the Septuagint, into the Greek. Into Greek. uh, By um, Tame. Right. So it's it's a deep question there. Why is it that we fast because of the translation Three of the Torah? Three days of darkness come into the world. That's right. And, and it was a terrible tragedy. Sure. And yet here we see God commanding Moshe and the people to translate the Torah into all the languages there are. Right. Well, if I may, the, the Tameh had a huge library. That's right. Right in, in Alexandria. And he wanted yet another knowledge to be under his belt. He wanted to control it. You see, I got it, the Torah. I know that too. Buddhism, Christianity. It's over there in the Judaism section. Yeah, I got it. I know it. God, he's, he's under me. I've, I've now mastered his knowledge as well. That's fine. Another knowledge. And it was not for a holy purpose. It was not to spread truth out. It was to contain it, to, to limit it, to, to own it, to control it, and to be above it. There's, there's another face to the tragedy as well, which is... Um, a bit of the historical context because of course the sages tell the tale of the translation of the Septuagint but it was really used by the Jews the Jews of Alexandria the Jews of Egypt were uh, Greek speaking Jews whose antiquity goes well back to the time of Alexander himself Um, and Philo of Alexandria testifies that in the first century before the common era they were already doing the public Torah reading in Greek they were doing it from the Septuagint as opposed to what we do today in the holy language so the other aspect of the tragedy is that the power of the translation of the Torah stones, that mezuzah of the land of Israel you spoke about, is it's very clear where the source is. 
right? You, you see those translations on the footstep of Eretz Israel, and it entices you to come in and see what's the source. Oh, wow, if this is their text. What does it actually look like in life? Whereas what was happening outside the land, particularly in Alexandria, was an abstraction and a move toward uh, a uh, sort of a philosophizing of the Torah. And in fact, it reached the point where the Christians would ultimately say that the translation of the Septuagint was itself divinely inspired and therefore more correct than the original Hebrew. Oh. Well, but that's consistent with exactly what Christianity looks at, is that the word itself is a failure. It's, it's in the spirit where the truth lies. And so mm. therefore, you see that the, the, the groundwork is laid for that misconception. Once again, they're thinking that, ah, the truth is in the spiritual. Oh, okay, you have to write it down, physicality. Okay, it's a, it's a bummer, but what are you going to do? <laughs> right? And, and the, the 70 languages, the Torah stones that you, that you so rightly named, it's the exact opposite. So go, here's the words. If you want to know what the content is, but you want to see what it's really about, now come in. And you see how this is actually lived in the physical world. And, and that, that mistake is mamash a tragic mistake because it leads people to reject the world. So we're really, we, we, we keep on going around the same theme here, which is really uh, God in this world bringing him into the real world. And it's all about the Torah portion's name, Ki Tavo. You're going to come into the land. Now, the people who, who brought us, um, well, into, into the land of Israel in this generation, in, the, in these times, uh, the founders of the state of Israel were the secular Zionists. Mm-hmm. Okay, one could, one could discuss what came before them and all that, but the bottom line is we all know... They did the work. They did the, the heavy lifting. Um, and, and there's a lot of explanations about why God actually empowered them. I heard a fantastic explanation one time uh, from a famous rabbi, Yeshiva University, Rabbi Schechter, who told the story of a Hasidic giant who basically had a dream that the generation of the desert, those who didn't make it to the land of Israel, they were very pious, but they didn't get a chance to go into the land of Israel, that they came to God and they said, we want to go to the land of Israel. He says, he says too late, you missed it. You, you missed your opportunity. You rejected the land of Israel and you died. It's over. There's no tshuva for you. And they begged them and they begged them and they begged them. And then they fi- he finally, God said to them, no problem. I'll bring you back into this world. You'll go into the land of Israel, but I want you to do only one mitzvah. No other mitzvahs. I don't want you to be, because you were pious in this world the first time. This time I want you to be only crazy about one mitzvah, and that's the mitzvah of the land of Israel. I want you to f- focus and be fixated on that. That's one explanation, and there, and there are others. Still, though, and we see it today, uh, secular Zionism was never going to really last because the Jewish people aren't secular. We're people of God. We're supposed to reflect God. And yet that idea that, that maybe there isn't a God and, 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 you know, I'm just doing it for nationalistic reasons and here I am. Well, what about, what, what is it so important now? I'm post-Zionist. You know, maybe I should move to, to, to France or, or America or, or whatever because it's not really what it's really all about. It's not really about Jerusalem and the temple. It's not really about the fathers and mothers of Hebron. It's not really about receiving the Torah and Shechem. It's not really about those things. It's really about... Drinking latte and just being like everybody else, and being a humanist. I mean, many of be them do want to be decent people. I would kind. Know. We'll send uh, we'll send uh, medical teams to Haiti and so forth. But the Torah here will uh, will take a sharp turn. It will first give us like, and if you go the right way, oh boy, the heavens are open to you and blessings will rain down. But if you don't. And then the Torah here for the second time, but much, much more deliberately, much uh, with, 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 with much more ink, 
spilled is going to lay out curses. Horrific curses. Horrific, horrific curses. The kind that we read in, in synagogue in a hushed tone because of how, 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 how deep, morbid, and, and graphic the, the images are going to be about women eating their children, about, 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 about nothing growing, about dying, about diseases. And the book says, even the things I didn't describe to you, there's going to be things. You don't even know how bad it's going to be. I mean, it was so bad already to describe it. And uh, that's called the curses of, um, of Kitavo. Of, of Kitavo. This is the, the other part of this Torah portion. We just talked about all the good stuff. And there's the bad stuff. Before I, I ask you about that, just one caveat. One thing I can't stand in this world, pet peeve, is when people say to me, how could you believe in God after the Holocaust? And I always tell people, you can be angry at God and be like, why did you do that? That I can understand. But the Holocaust is written into the book. And therefore, the Holocaust, if anything, is maybe unpleasant and not politically correct, but it's a proof for God and not... Uh, oh, I, I see. I see. I'm, I'm treading here on, on dangerous, well, on, 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 on uh, sensitive issues. The, the to me, to me, this rage and anger, whatever we 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 suffered in the Holocaust, it was written out in the book. It was in the book. We and it happened in real life, uh, to our great uh, sadness and dismay. And yet, reborn right afterwards, were the Jewish people. What do you make of these like horrific um, litany? Of, of curses that are written out in the Bible against the Jewish people. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's painful. And to me, this is where if one wants to embrace the wholeness of the Torah, they have to embrace the fact that it is not a rational endeavor. Because and when I've had this discussion, I've had it with many people, what's spoken about is issues of, of fairness, issues of um, responsibility, judgments on God. Like you say, that, that question of God in the Holocaust, I often receive from people when they say, well, where was God in the Holocaust? And the truth of the matter is my first response is always, well, where was humanity in the Holocaust? I mean, why, why are you so quick to move to God? Let's, let's talk about humanity and the, and the nature of what it is to be a human being and not to blame God for our problems. Nevertheless, I mean, you're raising another point, which is, well, but God clearly warned us that that such a thing could happen that such a thing could happen and um here's where i think it's important to remember that that um we are a people whose primary mission is to speak the unity of god in the world and and there are ways in which the unity of god has spoken which are not actually the way that we go there's the philosophical unity right where where any personality or or um notion of 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 providence of a god who cares become philosophically problematic when you really try to break god into the ultimate source of being right there's the physics you know unity which is really big in the world today in terms of like unified field theory and string and kabbalah and all that stuff but also you see what fades there is is the the personal responsibility and connection to god that comes through the commandments right our notion of the unity of god is a notion of moral unity which means both physics and philosophy and history speak of a unified will a unified will which dictates that actions matter and in the end of the day, we could pick apart this curse all we want. And it might be worthwhile to do, although I do find it very painful. But what you see coming out from it very clearly is if you choose to live in a world in which you feel your actions do not matter, then not only will your actions not matter, but that will be the greatest portal through which evil will enter. 
And I promise you, just like if I say, hey, don't touch that hot stove. Hey, don't touch that hot stove. And you touch it and you turn around and say to me, why did you burn me? And I say to you, I didn't burn you. I told you if you touch the stove, you're going to be burnt. Who's responsible? Right? In the same way, so we have to accept the fact that the great lesson of history for the Jewish people is that when we know that our actions matter, we are able to run our lives and, and to guide the world. And when we choose to live in a world of happenstance and we look outside of ourselves to blame God or to blame the nations or to, to simply deny the existence of anything and you know, go that path of complete meaningless that really is paved by Amalek, well, that's, that's when we throw the door open for suffering. And do you know that within these curses, there's a revelation of a secret of how God wants us to approach this world. There's a phrase here, a tiny little phrase, in the midst of all these curses, and I I actually have a theory that in every one of God's uh, rages, every one of his angers, there's a revelation of a deep, 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 deep truth that he only reveals to us when in a sense he's like incensed with us and he like, something kind of slips seemingly. Yeah, all the guard is down. Right, the guard is down and he's like, you know what, X, Y, and Z and everything, I'm really angry at you. And inside is suddenly an incredible secret about how to reach that unity. And it's not through string theory, and it's not through unified field theory, and it's not through uh, all those things. It's actually a greatest force of unification in this world, according to Judaism. And that is verse, uh, it's uh, chapter 28, Deuteronomy, verse 47. Because thou would not serve the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. And therefore, that's why things happen to you. Because you didn't serve God in joy. Or in other words, serve God in joy. That's my secret. My secret to you is, says God, the way to unify all things is to serve me in joy. Besimcha. Joy unifies all things. It is the most powerful of all things. It is, it is the Judaism's secret. It is the secret of Judaism. Um, and, and this week... At Marat Machpelah, the tomb of the, the tomb of the founding fathers and mothers, there have been incessant attacks against Jews, including very close to Marat Machpelah, uh, 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 recurring attempts to stab soldiers with horrible machetes and all that. And we had three weddings this week at Marat Machpelah. Three weddings, wow. and that is our answer. Our answer is our joy and our joy when we when we when we when we look at a problem that we have and we say, "Thank you, God, for this problem." Thank you, God, when we, when we recognize the truth of God in all things and do it in joy, <clears throat> not just through some kind of stoicism and all that kind of stuff, but really love God in joy and serve him in joy, that is a way to bring together uh, uh, all the various forces. And this secret of the joy is hidden in the darkest uh, uh, transmission of the Torah, which is, which is these curses. Inside is the secret, the secret of joy. It's beautiful what you're saying because it also gives us a definition of, of simcha because, you know, Hebrew in general is word poor compared to other languages. I mean, there are just not so many synonyms. And yet, right. oddly enough, there are certain words which get a complete plethora. And the, the words for happiness among them, I mean, you think of the wedding song, Gila, Rina, Ditsa, right. They say there's ten, ten synonyms in Hebrew for, for, for joy. Right. So the word simcha in particular... I think is about the joy of knowing that what I'm doing is moving the world toward a greater state of completion. Like think of the examples you gave, a wedding, right? That's a, 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 a union of two people, but it's also a union of generations, 
right? And and uh, the idea of uh, performing the commandments with joy is because I know that joy of, of getting up in the morning and knowing what I need to do and having the power of doing it, right? It's it's the joy of, of harmonious existence, of having my peace, of putting things together. And uh, that is the ultimate answer to an assertion that the world is meaningless, where we started with, with Amalek. Is it, okay, I can't fix it all, but I know that I have the power to make every action I do to be a source of joy. Joy is the ultimate weapon against Amalek. It's, it's, it's a light that, 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 that just they shriek away from, shrink away from. Um, and we are returning in joy. Hashem is returning us. And I must remind everybody out there that we're in the process of return right now. We're in the process of tshuva. The, which means uh, uh, repentance, but a return, a return to God, or to our natural state of a return to God. The Torah always links up the return to God with a return to the land of Israel. It's always, there's a linkage between those two things. And, and it goes both ways. When we return to God, he returns us to the land. But also when we return to the land, we're really returning to God. And he was Herzl. It was Herzl who said, the return to the land of Israel is first and foremost a return to Judaism. That's a Herzlian phrase. In any case, my friends, uh, we are here at the Mamilla Mall. Rabbi Mike had himself a nice uh, hafuch uh, latte. I had myself a fruit shake here. Below us, tons of people are walking to and fro in joy, uh, looking for a sale. Good luck with that. Uh, but in any case, uh, uh, above us uh, is the ble- beautiful blue skies of the land of Israel. Below us uh, is Jerusalem. And around us is a great society and a great new mall here, the Mamilla Mall. And you can be part of it so easily. Uh, and take any steps you can. Drink the wine of the land of Israel. Put up a picture of the land of Israel. I tell people all the time, a little aliyah that you could do is make sure that you have a good picture of the land of Israel in your house. Of Tzfat, of Hebron, of Yerushalayim. Have something in your house. Let it be a reminder, like a mezuzah. Let it be a type of mezuzah for you, for your neshama, to remember where home is and, and where the Holy Land is. So remember that always. And it is holy, and it is amazing, and you're a part of it wherever you are. Rabbi Mike, Shabbat Shalom. Thanks so much for being with us. Shabbat Shalom. Always a pleasure. May we merit to defeat Amalek and and keep uh, uh, Judaism, keep the Torah, fulfill the Torah, fulfill God's will in this world. Enjoy. Shabbat Shalom. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed the show. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Amir Ohana, Knesset member, defender of Israel, and at the same time, a gay Israeli. Fantastically interesting combination of things. And what do you think about that? I want to hear from you. Write me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com. And of course, Spiritual Cafe with Rabbi Mike Foyer, our very important segment on the Torah portion of the week. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to hear from you. Write me that email. Uh, keep um, the subject line simple. I am a listener. I'm a listener. And would love to hear from you. No matter where you are, remember, today is Chai Elul. It's the rebirth uh, opportunity to get ready for Rosh Hashanah. Be vivified. Be reborn. Be strengthened. Be part of the story. Don't let anything get you down. Remember how important, how central happiness is. And get juiced up uh, for an amazing new year with lots of blessings that are coming your way. Stay tuned. Stay strong. Stay connected. And Shalom. This is Eve Harrow, host of Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. My maternal grandparents, Grandpa Morris and Grandma Lily, came to the United States from Russia over a hundred years ago. They belonged to the Mizrahi movement way before there was even a state of Israel. The Land of Israel Network is powered by the Mizrahi world movement. Hello, my name is Tommy Waller. I'm the founder and president of Hayyuvel. 
More than 12 years ago, I made my first trip to the land of Israel. What I saw and heard changed my life forever. I stood with Nir Levi, an Orthodox Jewish man in his vineyard in Samaria on the mountain of blessing. There he opened his Bible and read the prophecy of Jeremiah that said, you shall yet plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. This fall, during the grape harvest, we have the opportunity to join Israel as it celebrates the 50th year of the liberation of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Come join us as we witness the unveiling of prophecy in the Jubilee year. Come be a part of the biblical narrative. Go to Hayovel.com, that's H-A-Y-O-V-E-L.com, to find out more. And I hope to see you there.